Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It's me, Steve Hole, as Jared likes to call me, Hole. <laughs> uh, we have Jared Feather on the podcast. Long time no see. This is Jared's third time on the podcast. Um, I think by popular demand, he would have been on a lot more. So guys, this is like an exclusive shiny that we uh, have to take special uh, attention to. So enjoy this. Make sure you share the hell out of it. Make sure that you tag Jared a lot and make him feel really appreciated because I really appreciate him coming on. He's a very smart dude, very humble dude. Contest prep coach at RP uh, for an Renaissance Periodization, if you aren't aware, has an MS in exercise physiology. And you're still studying now, right, Jared? Yeah. So I just got back into a pretty rudimentary curriculum just to get myself on track for a didactic program in nutrition. Um, a lot of the classes I took in master's degree led to similar classes for nutritional sciences, but I have to take some uh, general education courses to get me on track with the actual program in nutrition. So I'm taking those this semester and then I'll be in the program next semester and that, that'll take me about a year and a half to uh, complete that, complete the internship and then get my uh, RD. So I'm doing the RD option and then uh, after that, we'll see, hopefully PhD. Very, very cool. Awesome. And for those of you who don't know, Jared is also a a very, very competitive bodybuilder um, and is like, if you can't, if you're not watching (laughs) the video, he's even got some decent biceps now. It took him a while, but he's got them now. Yours Uh, are still bigger, man. I'm I'm staying away from you in London. I'm staying away. (laughs) I wish. I wish they were bigger. So we roll right into the questions because I think that's where the value is at. And actually, before we do that, um, this is kind of a special episode in a, in a way, although I imagine by the time this comes out, we may have even sold out of tickets because we only have, I think, eight tickets left or something, which is incredible to know that we've sold out from the that's seminar great. in like a month. So, yeah, thank you so much. That's amazing. Yeah, no, it's amazing to have Jared, um, Mike, or obviously Eric Helms, Alberto, all over on the 9th and 10th of May in London. And uh, yeah, so if there are tickets left, there'll be a link below and you can grab them. And this will give you a bit of a taster of what you can get or maybe what you end up missing if you aren't coming. So yeah, let's, let's rock into the first question, which was from Mohammed, And he asked, how different is the experience of managing fatigue and training with a natural competitor versus someone who is enhanced? So... I come at this from a couple of perspectives uh, as far as coaching. Generally, someone who is enhanced uh, waited. They became a little, they, they trained a little while before they started steroids. I don't know many people who started right away. So they tend to increase or accumulate strength very rapidly, um, especially when they're first starting off. So it might be a good idea to slowly increase their volume and sets. Uh, to see where they sort of land as far as the, that, that initial shift in their MRV. What a lot of people will do is they'll change right away. They'll see all these strength gains coming and they'll try to implement super heavy loads and then they end up getting hurt. And even if they don't get hurt, they end up putting a lot of wear on their joints. They'll put a lot of wear on their tendons and eventually it leads to tears and things like that. But when someone is first transitioning, that's probably a good way to go about it. And you can start implementing those, those increases in the load over the, over the long term. And then when you get into the actual programming aspect of everything, things don't change too much. Um, they're just going to have relatively higher MRVs than what they had before. 
I'm not going to say people who are enhanced can recover better than people who are natural because there are people who are natural who, who I've coached who have way higher MRVs than somebody who is enhanced. Um, and then when you progress through their career, if you work with someone who's super advanced, so right now I work with a, a classic physique pro. He turned pro last year. He's probably at the peak of his weight class uh, as far as how much muscle he can he can realistically gain and get back down to his weight cap for classic physique. And he's he's nearing that that sort of super advanced end range. When you when you look at people like that you have to get very creative. Um, that's when like pre-exhaust comes in handy. Maybe eliminating things like deadlifts that are super systemically fatiguing is a good idea because if they, if they do deadlifts uh, and then back squats and all these super heavy, hard compound exercises within one mesocycle, the systemic, systemic fatigue might become so much that they could have actually done more volume if they had not done that and could grow even better. So there are little variables you got to look at like that when you get super advanced, but right away, you know, that's such a, such a small percentage of people right away. Uh, just what I said in the beginning are the variables that you kind of want to pay attention to. If, if you're in that realm of coaching and you do have a client who's like, Hey, I talked to so-and-so I'm going to do this and make sure that they're working with somebody that you trust. Um, but it's, you know, those are, those are very good questions for Broderick as well. Uh, he, he works with a lot of those people. I've, I've worked with a few. Um, but yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I guess the, the real crux of it is that initial period when you're jumping on, um, is the period of time you have to be careful with. And then after that, it's a sense of the same sort of water regulation that you would take a natural through. Next question is from Anshuman Radhakrishnan. And I only know how to say his name because the guys at RP plus Mike and Anshuman, his name always comes up and he has asked you, the biggest points of disagreement between yourself and Mike. Yo, Ant is a spy for 3DMJ who's <laughs> trying to break apart our bond before we go into the civil war against them. It ain't going to happen, Ant. It ain't going to happen. You can't tear <laughs> mine and Mike's bond apart. <laughs> um, but no, uh, I think that'd be, that'd be more of a roundtable thing for me and Mike to do if we ever wanted to. Um, I think we find ourselves in, in very logical based conversations about very nuanced variables um, while we train together and stuff. Uh, some of the frequency, uh, frequency as a, as a variation tool, things like that. We don't necessarily disagree. I think I just have my reserves um, are a little higher, uh, uh, with change, yeah. changing things that, that I've done for a long time. Um, and I tend to, I think I just need a little bit more time and a little bit more data to come out on some of the things that we might implement. Yeah. But for the most part, like applying the principles is applying the principles. And we agree very, uh, very heavily on the way that we structure mesocycles, the way that we uh, go about, programming for clients, but yeah, it, it, you're going to have to get into the very, very nuanced, uh, principles. If, if you're ever going to catch any two people in the field that are pretty high education, if you're going to catch them in an actual disagreement, because a lot of times you're going to see these guys. So like, 
like you've had Eric and Mike on with uh, roundtables and people are thinking it's going to be this big debate. And really it's like a tautological disagreement where they're saying the exact same thing, just in different terms. Mm. And then they come to this conclusion like, Oh, so we probably should have just, you know, steel manned our, our, our sides, our stances first. So that we realize we're just talking about the same thing in different words. Yeah. And a lot of times that's, that's the result of mine and Mike's conversations. Like, Oh, you're saying this, but I, I think this. And he's like, no, that's what I mean. And I'm like, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's incredibly well put. It, whenever we have a round table, and I don't think we ever called them properly like debates or like, yeah. because it, it's not really a, a side because like you said, everyone who is within the podcast, within this field is in agreement with the major things. And it's just like the very minor minutiae things that maybe there's just, I don't know, I just prefer it this way. There's no evidence for it. There's no evidence either way. It's just kind of what your preference is, what's working for you. At that yeah, 100%. Time. Like the, even even things that are like super back and forth. Uh, so let's, this is going to come up anyway. Let's take like the hip thrust stuff, for example. Like my stance would almost always be 80% heavy compound, 20% isolation stuff. If you choose to put hip thrust in, uh, so be it. Do I think there are better exercises than hip thrust? To be your isolated exercises, yeah, I do. Um, does somebody who put out a lot of research on that think that? Maybe not. Uh, they might also agree with me. Uh, you'd have to talk to that person and really steel man, like I said, steel man their stance in order to, to understand. So people will come come at us like, oh, you guys definitely disagree on this. I've seen your posts and I've seen their posts. You're definitely, definitely in disagreement. And it's like, man. What I agree with a lot of what they're saying, actually, I just think there are things that are better, yeah. um, potentially. And I think that maybe we can interpret research a little bit better, or we could do different research on it to make sure that it's actually the case. So that's why with these, when you have newer studies coming out and you have uh, new data coming out, like instead of hopping on that, you kind of wait, you wait for the meta-analyses, you wait for people to really interpret the data, and then you can make... Uh, a, you know, a theoretical response to the, to a large collection of data whenever you really know. Other than that, it's just hypotheses and you're kind of just saying stuff and making it black and white is a little bit like, eh, you're, you're making it black and white for us. Let us, let us talk about this. Like let's get both people in one place and they can, they can discuss it and then you can see what they mean. Yeah. I think that's very well put especially in the day and age that we're in with all the social media and you know, and if, even in a, a single post, you can only provide so much context and people then try and kind of put you in a position that not you didn't necessarily mean. And it's, it's just a tricky game to play. And this is why like the podcasts are so great because you have long form content where people can actually explain their position. We can have the round tables and debates. So uh, yeah, maybe we have to get, well, we do have um, an idea to get you guys all on, uh, including Charlie for a bit of a round table in future. Yeah, I saw that. That would be fun. Definitely. I saw you message Charlie about that. I thought that would be a lot of fun. So we have to yeah keep that in the, keep that under wraps for now. And then that will come in future, but we get to the next question. So this one is from Andrew Potacek. And he has asked about how to get a dry look. Why am I always soft looking? What have you found to be different for people who are enhanced in terms of holding water and how to keep someone looking a bit sharper whilst dieting? Uh, man. So again, like these sort of questions are going to be really good for Broderick. If he's talking about enhanced, like, I don't know. Cause he said, why do I always look watery? And then he mentioned enhanced. I'm not going to assume he's enhanced, but maybe that's why he's asking. Um, what I can say on the subject is that when someone becomes enhanced, 
there are large shifts in uh, fluid volume inside, outside of the cell. Um, certain compounds pull in a larger amount of water, a larger amount of glycogen, um, a larger amount of just different substrates, and certain compounds can also release some extracellularly. There's just a lot going on there that, uh, like I said, Broderick would be a lot more, uh, just, just a better person in general to talk about that kind of stuff. But like, when people say dry versus watery, I just assume they're talking about close to competition. Yeah. And that's an entire peaking conversation. And with enhanced, I'm not even going to pretend like I figured that out yet. <laughs> like uh, implementing special sports supplements and stuff. It's like just such a, a huge variable. And I think maybe you, well, it might've been you or Jeff Nippert a long time ago had a round table with Cliff Wilson. That was Jeff. Was it Jeff? Yeah. It was Cliff, Eric, and uh, do you remember the other guy's name? I don't remember the other guy, but he was on the enhanced the right. side. Did, so he, he does both, and he, he did a really good job of explaining that. So you guys can type that in Peak Week uh, Roundtable, Jeff Nippard, and there are three coaches who are discussing uh, how you can potentially manipulate all the variables depending on if somebody is enhanced versus not enhanced. I know he talks a lot about the enhanced. I think Cliff and, and Eric stay away from it quite a bit. So. Yeah may need to get another one of those round tables going out of interest jared in terms of obviously natural guys right. what that'd be very interesting with like broderick me and mike uh if you wanted to talk about peaking with natural versus enhanced because broderick can yeah can all you know he knows all the molecular pathways and then why something might happen and how to create gradients before you pull back and it's very interesting to hear him talk about it and i mean me and you even uh peaking you naturally your natural shows me, you, and Broderick chatted, and Broderick yeah. had a lot of good shit to say. So it's, I'm not going to say it's wildly different, but it can be wildly, wildly different because people do react different to different compounds, and different compounds are literally made to be reacted different to um, as far as classes of pharmacology go and what is going to happen to the individual. And I was just going to say, Jared, in terms of just as a side point, as a natural who's looking to kind of get dry, I guess, or in peak week, what are the variables that you are looking at? If someone is looking kind of watery pre-stage, it's just a lot simpler. So I just, just to rattle it off the listeners. So if someone seems to be like storing extracellular fluid before stage, um, something that is probably bad is pulling fluid. <laughs> uh, it's really going to depend on the variable that, that kind of got out of whack. So if you look at them and you're like, you're looking watery and they say, yeah, uh, I ate this. I ate this instead of this. And you look at the package and the package has like a thousand milligrams of sodium that you hadn't accounted for. It's actually a good idea to drink water to expel that. And uh, then, you, then you'll look a little drier. And then if they had overdone the water and then um, didn't have enough sodium in the bloodstream and then like a bathroom was present and all that, you might want to pull back on the water. So it really is just going to depend on all the variables that you kept track of through their peak week and making sure that you know how they're responding to each of them. Um, Cause it's not just one or the other, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's also times when people, this is very difficult to do, but you can overdo the carbohydrates and a very simple um, way to fix that is just to literally do a pump. Yeah. Uh, do a small pump up in each of the muscle groups, uh, drink some more water. And then uh, hopefully by the time stage comes around, you can fix it. Yeah. Some of the, so just to summarize kind of like sodium, water, carbs, outside of that as a natural you haven't got a whole host of different variables that could be throwing you off like you have 
when you're in Hans. So I can no, see my, like, that so, peaking is so much more difficult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just way more difficult because it, the, the pharmacology is also acting on all that stuff. And some of it is literally meant to act on it in a different way, Damn. which might make you store extracellular or make you look watery. Uh, I've noticed in general, you can't have sodium as high in enhanced people. Um, it might be a bad idea, but whenever I peak a natural person, their sodium is way over recommended daily allowance and it makes them look very hard or dry or whatever you might want to call it. Cool. Awesome. You're we'll carrying get... the water to it. Yeah. So we'll get to the next question. And this one is from Wesley Blom. And he has asked, do you think there is a place for a hex bar deadlift or a sumo deadlift and the conventional deadlift in one mesocycle? Um, and you might even be able to, I, I think I'd be interested as well to hear just your general opinion on hex bar deadlifts. Uh, and if not, uh, which you prefer and why? Does he mean all three in the same mesocycle? That is what it sounded like. Okay. Uh, I think that would be rather systemically fatiguing. And I don't think deadlifts are an exercise that you really want to do in a higher rep range. If you were to pick one to do in a high rep range, it, it would probably be hex bar deadlifts, a little more quad emphasis, uh, a little easier to hold onto the bar. It's not out in front of you as much. It's not putting as much, uh, you're not taxing the erectors as much. So you're less likely to get hurt. So if you wanted to do like a sumo and hex bar or a conventional and hex bar, and this is for hypertrophy, obviously, because in strength, sometimes they will do, I won't say all three, but they do a lot of variations of both of the sumo and conventional. But if you're going to pair like a sumo and a conventional with the hex bar, so one or the other with the hex bar, it might be fine. Uh, you could definitely try that for your, for your, uh, your first day of the week could be your hamstring emphasis day where you're doing conventionals or whatever it may be. And then later on in the week, you have like a lighter session. You could do higher repetition hex bar deadlifts. I think there's probably something better you could do, but it, you could definitely do that. I would say pairing all three and then also just with the relative loads that you're going to be using, it's going to be so systemically fatiguing that it, it might put a damper on some of your other training. And it might cut your mesocycle a little short. It's, it's going to depend on how you can regulate it all. But I don't think I would do it. Cool. And actually, in your, while we're talking about deadlifts, um, you spoke about kind of the deadlift as someone's getting more advanced might not be the best tool, I guess, due to like the fatigue trade-off to the amount of stimulus. When is kind of, how do you decide whether or not you keep a deadlift in a program? I know, I think it was 2017, your prep, you were deadlifting in like your uh, video logs that you were doing there. Um, mm -hmm. So you were pretty advanced as a natural there. Is there a time when you're like, uh, I'm going to trade that out? Have your opinions changed a little bit? Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of the Revive Stronger member site. Inside you'll find a thriving forum, a growing exercise library, presentations, research reviews, and courses. If you want to get involved, sign up via the description. So I think even in those, if you notice, it was more, they were variations of the deadlift that I intentionally would use less load on, especially because I was dieting down. Um, I know I did sumos for the first meso conventionals and then I would make like a deficit or something. Um, I also wasn't extremely strong in the deadlift and I also made sure that I focused on my technique like, like no other. Um, so low rack, always tight, etc. But when you notice that the deadlift is uh, potentially impeding a client's recovery, 
like, uh, and that comes by you obviously auto-regulating the client's week to week performance. So let's say they train their hamstring emphasis day, they do deadlifts and then you notice like the rest of the week starts to suffer. And then you also notice they, the mess cycle ends early because they have to deload, but they're also in that rep range that you wanted them to be in. They're using the loads you wanted them to use. They're at the right relative intensity. That probably means it's just super systemically fatiguing and it's fucking with all your other training. Uh, at that point in time, it might be a good idea to trade it out. You also are going to want to pay attention to their feedback. And you're also going to want to uh, just pay attention to, like, like I said, how their performance is doing. So, Cool. Awesome. Answered it really well. And we get to the next question. So this one is from Brandon James O'Donnell. And he said, is there any subtle changes Jared has made to his training set up over the past few years? whether it's from an injury, stimulus fatigue, prioritization you're doing, any lifestyle circumstances? Um, outside of regular phase potentiated changes that are calculated, I don't generally change what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis much. Um, obviously, I adhere to the principles. I make variations when I need to make variations. Um, and just when I come to a point in time when I need to maintain, I maintain during those times, instead of training two times a day, I train one time a day to cut back on my volume. Um, during my massing, I go back to two times per day. I can tell you one thing that I did recently, if you would like an example, um, in Thailand, I ended up (laughs) cutting my foot open, um, while I was on a moped and (laughs) it was right at the, uh, bend in my ankle so i couldn't really do too much uh flexion there so dorsiflexion i couldn't have a lot of dorsiflexion and because of that i had to widen my stance and squats and do more sumo based squats instead of a narrow stance or a smith or a leg press or whatever it may be so i think last month was the first month where i was able to implement a more narrow stance i did hack squats um variation that wasn't recutting open that old injury if I dorsiflexed. So I've had to work around injuries. Um, I had some uh, medial uh, epicondylitis going on that hurt. Uh, (laughs) I had to, uh, instead of curling how I like to curl, which is probably better elbows forward, you know, coming down out in front of you, I had to, sort of shift my elbows back and curl behind the body a little bit for, for a mesocycle. Um, I had to cut out some of the upright rowing that I was doing, but yeah, there are ways to just step back um, when you have an injury, especially if it's an overuse injury and limit the amount of use that's going to that specific area and then regulating the volume as you go through the mesocycle to make sure the injury isn't reoccurring. So I've had to do that a couple of times within the last year, but huge changes to my training. Um, there haven't been much except for the fact that I'm in the camp of my MRV has increased quite a bit. Cool. So yeah, I think I saw you sumo squatting and I was like, I was wondering why you're doing it. Cause I was like, your glutes are pretty big. Do you want to further emphasize those? And now it all makes sense. Cause yes, I, I remember your injury as well. And, 
So with that shit, you know, I get that question all the time. With that, it's like nobody in the history of ever in bodybuilding had too big of glutes. People are always like, are you sure you want to train your glutes still? Why are you doing lunges? Why are you doing this? And I'm just like, tell me Ronnie Coleman didn't have the best back double bicep ever. And part of that was because you look at his glutes and his hamstrings and it's like, oh my God, it's amazing. So until my quads are a weak point, which I don't think is happening anytime soon, I'm going to train my glutes also. Like it's just part of the process, you know? Yeah. Are you doing out of interest specialization phases at the moment or have you not? I guess that was part of his question too. Yeah, that's a good, uh, so this last massing phase, I actually didn't, uh, I kind of just wanted to come back to training everything and that, that might specializing might've been a good idea. I did, um, use narrow grips for my arms. Um, but besides that, I, I split the volume relatively evenly across all muscle groups and just worked to my MRV uh, systemically. But that was probably more just a preference of I, I wanted to go back to training everything hard. Yeah. Uh, I had specialized, I think, like arms for the last probably year um, outside of dieting down and all that stuff. So it was just like, eh. We're, we're going to train everything and see how, see how the growth goes yeah. because I'm relatively new to the implementation of special sports subs. And it's like, do, should I be specializing just yet? Uh, I'm unsure. So I'm, I'm trying to just sort of step back and, and grow everything, which yeah. is what I'm going to need to do anyway, if I want to be an open bodybuilder. So I think that that puts me in a more of a intermediate stage there. Awesome. And actually, out of interest, you mentioned your MRVs have gone higher. Is something, obviously, I think you've probably seen the literature where it's suggesting 10 sets might be for a muscle group, there or thereabouts, the maximum you'd want to do in a single workout for it. So have you found that you've had to increase frequencies or are you do you abide by that 10 set principle or like not 10 sets necessarily, but might be like 12, um, after which you may be causing too much disruption and damage or are you finding that that's not something you're having to work around um because i run two days i haven't ran into the issue of needing to split that up too much uh and i also think there's so much nuance in these studies that it's just difficult to say i can only do 10 sets in a session it's like okay legs quads are super fatiguing my MRV is probably like 16 sets. I could do eight sets of quads in a session. And then after that, if I still need to hit like hamstrings and then maybe biceps afterwards, if I was someone who was training one time a day, more than likely it's fine. And it might, you might go into like 12, 13, 14 sets. And I think you're going to be okay. Um, as far as per muscle group per session. There you go. That's what I was going to say. Uh, 10 to 12 sets is quite a bit. I'd like to see somebody perform full range of motion, uh, you know, strict pauses, um, taxing the fibers the way they should be taxed for over 10 sets for quads in a session. Like let's say 12 sets of quads in a session, doing things perfectly. That's going to be fucking tough, man. Like I did a mess cycle where I was doing mostly hamstrings and then leg press at the end of my hamstring session. And I got through five sets of leg press and I was like, I programmed squats after that. And I was just like, dude, there's no way I can squat. So we had to modify the entire mesocycle based because of that. 
so it's like, I think if people are actually doing things with full range of motion, uh, getting into that relative intensity where they're close to failure and everything else is going well, it's going to be really tough to exceed like a 12 set per body part per session. Yeah. That's, that's quite a bit. Yeah. Cool. No, perfect. We'll get to the next question, uh, which is from, actually, I think this is kind of vaguely come up uh, maybe it hasn't actually but i'll get your opinion on it uh, marcus has asked full body training for advanced trainees what's your experience with it or i guess if you haven't experienced it what's your uh, kind of thoughts on it so this might be one of those things potentially and i can't say for sure that uh mike has given more lenience to you than i have like i say i have my reserves a little bit more and i think i have my reserves because I, I I do imagine there are physiological reasons why someone who is advanced has a certain stimulus threshold intra-session that they need to hit before they actually produce any sort of gains. And I think full body all the time, especially if somebody's training like five, six days a week, I don't know if you're going to hit that, that, uh, that stimulus threshold. I'm unsure that's going to happen. Uh, if you want to activate mTOR and you want to activate downstream satellite cells and you want to uh, have them proliferate to the area and every all these things that need to happen for growth, I think there's probably, like I said, there's probably a certain threshold stimulus that has to occur for that to happen. And I, I'm unsure if that's going to happen with like three sets or two sets of everything in the session. So like two sets of quads, two sets of chest, two sets of back, two sets of biceps, two sets of triceps. I think it, you might, you're going to have to stimulate that muscle a little bit more before you can ever actually, anything ever actually happens for growth. If that makes sense. hundred percent. I think, um, I think the reserves in that a little bit more than some of the other guys uh, do because they're seeing some studies that are promising as far as it promoting similar growth. But I'm just, I'm unsure. I haven't read the studies, so I can't tell you that I've interpreted the data or anything, or I've looked at the variables that they control, but I definitely have my reserves about it. This can definitely be maybe one of the things that you can clash on with uh, Eric and Alberto only because I know Eric has uh, run some kind of more so full body programs. So that'll yeah, certainly yeah. be an interesting discussion. Yeah. And you know, I'm not going to say it's, I can speculate that it's probably not going to produce as much, yeah. uh, as much muscle tissue growth. But uh, I, I'm not going to be able to say with certainty. So it would be a cool discussion to have. I would love to hear. I mean, obviously, these guys know a lot more about uh, physiology than I do. So it would be very cool to sit down and discuss why they think things are going a certain way. And I really respect that response, to be honest, because I think sometimes people don't acknowledge that they're speculating something and they're more so right. saying it as a, no, this is a hard rule. This is definitely better. And it's like, no, for uh, sure. And that's what I mean about people like, uh, coming up with my stance for me and then going and talking to somebody and then them coming up with their stance and coming to talk to me like, Hey, so-and-so said this, go, go talk shit. And I'm just like, <laughs> I don't know about this. Fantastic. We get to the next question, which is from Morton Morty. And he has said, Do you know, man? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let's assume it is. Oh, we got Morty just there. Brilliant. Uh, do you prefer Morty or Rick? <laughs> Me? He hasn't asked that. I'm just asking. Oh, <laughs> that's an obvious answer. <laughs> yeah. Morty, obviously, he's just so. Yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely more like Morty. 
Just kidding. So uh, he has asked, do you prefer reactive or predetermined deloads and why? That's a good question. Um, so reactive being you realize that you're, uh, you have locally overreached a certain muscle group or um, proactive, there is a planned deload period where you are going to deload. Both are going to occur probably at some point in your career. They need to. Uh, proactive deloads almost certainly need to occur, uh, depending on your level of advancement, at least every four to eight weeks. Um, it's just going to be very hard for you to continue making gains if you uh, are chronically overreached. Uh, it's just probably not going to happen. If you are locally overreached and you are early on in the meso cycle still, or let's say you ended a deload too early on accident, I, me and Steve have had this conversation before. He did it once, I think. You end a deload too early, a proactive deload too early, um, and you start progressing in your meso cycle and you realize my quads never recovered from the deload. Um, and now they are, my performance is going down. It's only week three in my meso cycle. I have two more weeks left. You could. Uh, reactively deload that uh, local musculature and then the next week continue progressing as if it were uh, fine. So both uh, are more than likely, or I'm not gonna, so reactive are more than likely to occur at some point, especially with life stressors and things like that that you can't control. And proactive, or I, I'm assuming the proactive would be the implementation of a deload that is planned. Uh, those are for sure they should probably occur uh, for sure. Probably Mike's going to give me shit for that. They should <laughs> for sure occur <laughs> um, uh, at least every four to eight weeks, I would say. Awesome. Brilliantly said, let's get to the next question. That's, that's so, what he means by proactive. I'm assuming the I, implementation of a deload that is planned. Yeah. He said occur. reactive and predetermined. So I don't know if maybe. Okay, predetermined. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if maybe he was like, you set up a program and you're like, I'm going to deload week five, no matter what, or it's a case of I'm going to deload and it might be week five. It might be week four. It might be week six. And that's the reactive element of it. Um, sure. Yeah. That, that's, that's a fine, that's a fine thing too. Uh, if you realize that you're, uh, that you have, and that I assume what you're saying is actually what he meant. Um, if you find that by week five, uh, your performance has gone up, you are not overreached. And the next week isn't going to be like too life stressing to where you can then try to actually overreach it uh, because you technically tried to overreach this fifth week, but you didn't. Um, then yeah, that sixth week, you, you probably go push it, push it another week, see how you feel. If you only make it through half a week, good. You only make it through half a week, but you got another half week of hard training and now you can deal it. So cool. Awesome. Peyton has asked, uh, what is it like being, and I'm asking this because it got quite a few likes. What is it like being a genetic freak? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, man, that's a, that's a tough question to answer. It's like, uh, what's it like being a girl or <laughs> what's it like? Yeah. Uh, I could get philosophical on this shit if, if, if they really want to hear that. I, I think that'd be awesome. Something I just would put it out there is I always appreciate your absolute honesty with it. It's not like you... Right. try and say oh i'm this way because it's all down to my hard work and all of this right. stuff you're very honest about the fact that you appreciate you have decent genetics which right, for, sure. for me is refreshing to see because i'm not yeah, sure yeah. everyone's like that uh, it's it, what it is like it is like i can do very well in bodybuilding uh 
that's cool because I like to bodybuild. Uh, it is also like, um, contributes to imposter syndrome a lot because I do things that I think are the truth. I, I implement things that I think are mostly correct. And if they are not mostly correct, um, I, I try to make sure that I can learn the things that are. And that's where like podcasts and, and learning from people like Mike and Eric and all those, that's where all that comes in. So someone could definitely look at me and then sort of do what they do with some fitness influencers and try to dismiss anything that I'm saying, which means that I have to know things almost exceptionally more well than other people. Because if you run into somebody who doesn't have such good genetics and they're making progress, uh, the progress is going to come anyway. And I don't think people realize that. But when you look at someone with, with really good genetics, the progress is going to come anyway. And then also dismiss, right? Cause they have good genetics. The progress is going to come anyway, but the progress is coming anyway for anyone. Um, so if somebody who doesn't have good genetics is saying something that is contradictory to my statement, people can definitely dismiss what I'm saying because, uh, what I'm doing is going to work anyway. And people do this with people who use pharmacology too. Uh, they do it all the time. Big They're time. like, well, he uses steroids, so he doesn't know what he's talking about. But what I don't think people understand is that it comes down to physiological inferences and data and we're, it's not just people saying shit to try to get you to train like them because I don't give a flying fuck if you train like me. I don't care if you um, agree with what I say or, or you know, it's like you, you want to do something completely opposite of me just because you want to. But what comes out of my mouth has nothing to do with the genetics of, of, my, of what's going on as far as my bodybuilding career. So it's like, I have to be overly concise, overly precise with the things that I say and know them super well before I ever feel comfortable saying them. And that contributes honestly to a lot of me not coming on the podcast and stuff. Like I want to make sure that I know things so well that I can explain them at a physiological level if I have to, at a, a microphysiological level if I have to, if it arises. And sometimes I don't feel comfortable enough doing that. So it's like, I can say what I can say, and people are potentially just going to dismiss it because yeah, that's the guy with good genetics who was, you know, one of the youngest natural pro bodybuilders, but was also one of the biggest on stage. It's like, I imagine, I think Josh, what's his last name? I always forget his name. I just remember his Kenyan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's in a, I think he's in an exercise physiology program. And I imagine he's going to run into this exact same issue I'm running into because he is where I was at when I was his age. It's like, that guy for sure took steroids because nobody saw my six month transformation. Nobody saw that I put on like 50 pounds of body weight in six months. Um, they didn't realize that I was like a genetic freak. So they're just like, this guy's on steroids. And then when they realized I was a genetic freak, it's like, well, he's a genetic freak. So that's, that's something that people like that have to deal with. I think it's like, okay, people might people, and this is only for people in the evidence-based field which are people who I really want to impact because obviously general population for decades have looked at genetic freaks and then done dumb shit because the genetic freaks did it. So this is like the people I want to impact and the people I want to teach and the people that are listening to this podcast, uh, get, give me more pushback, I think, or so it seems. And this is also yeah. just me, being me <laughs> and all that stuff. But yeah, it's definitely, it's cool and it's not cool. Uh, but it's mostly cool for bodybuilding. It's yeah. very cool for bodybuilding. And that, you know, this question was on there too. And I really just, I don't care. Influence the decision to take the leap. 
I think it's... If I wasn't a genetic freak and I didn't do very well in a pro circuit, um, the leap would have never happened. The leap is to influence people who, instead of really taking it back and thinking about what all the people listening to this podcast think about day in and day out, which is the nuance of everything, which is how to actually program, how to diet correctly, what is the science? There are people out there who just take the leap instead. And then they don't ever actually think about stuff. And what I want to help them do is think about stuff. And the only way I can do that is if I am them. If I am them, then they will listen. Then they will potentially open their ears and say, hey, this guy's really jacked. This guy is somebody that's on the big stage. And he's saying some things that make a lot of sense. And that's for sure why that happened. So. Super interesting. And it's really interesting actually to hear your perspective on being on the like genetic elite side, not that I'd say I have poor genetics, but I just have very average ones. And so I'm always on the side of, I don't look that impressive. So I don't get the people to believe me. And it's very interesting to hear that you've kind of got the sense of, I look so good and I have such good genetics that people don't kind of, they just think I'm unachievable. And however I got there, isn't how they're going to get there. So for me, at least looking towards you, Jared, uh, I just look up to you as someone who's very knowledgeable and you can actually talk through everything that you know. And it's not just a case of, I have big muscles, I lift these weights, go hard. It's a case of everything you explain, the rationale behind it. And I think that for people listening, at least, I think that's kind of the response, hopefully, that most people would have. And they can see through a facade or see through if the person's talking good stuff. No, for sure. And, it, you know, it's uh, it's also when you are genetically gifted, it's like super hard to change uh, your ways because everything you do works. Um, like when I was, like I said, I, I, when I was, when I first started, I was 115 pounds. I weighed one, one five, right? Um, that six month period when I first started training, I gained 50 pounds and I weighed 165. And I had abs and delts and veins all over the place. And I thought what I was doing was the best. It's the best. And because of that, I'm sure I said some really stupid shit. And that's just sort of this thing that some genetic elite fall into. And it continues all the way through their career for some of them, which sucks because you'd think they, want to, they would want to learn some more. So it's it's – it takes a lot of introspection and stepping back and looking at the data and listening to these people who are a lot more knowledgeable than you. Like what I'm doing is working. Does it mean it's, does that mean it's the best? And it's like almost certainly no. Um, so it takes, and this is for like all the, all the kids who are listening to this or the young, younger population. Um, you know, you might know, you might think you know what you're doing just cause you're getting results but there, there's probably something, but like, listen to these people saying stuff. You have to step back and you have to be like, okay, I'm going to actually pay attention to the science and see what's going on here. And if these guys have some really good stuff to contribute to my training, I'm going to try to implement it. And you might get even better results. So it, it does in that mindset, it's like what I'm doing is working, but I still have to push myself to learn stuff. 
Hey, Pascal here. I just quickly wanted to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we put a huge emphasis on the personal aspect of our coaching. And if you want to take your physique and knowledge to the next level, hit the link in the description below. I think it can be really tough, especially when you have an emotional attachment to something that you've been doing and you right. work really hard at it. And it's like seeing something else that you're like, oh, you just, you feel so uncomfortable about moving over to that 100%. way. And it's tough. And that's where the whole train harder thing comes in. You know, I trained 12 hours a day in that first six months of my training. Wow. Career. That's a 12 lot. Hours a day. That's not even a joke either. That's like, uh, couple hours in the morning before school I had a weights class and then we had those the four block periods during school weights class I was a TA for a weights class where I also trained and then I would go after school for three hours and then I'd go home and I would do like P90X with my friend and we just it was just training all day and I was like see it's hard work hard harder not smarter you know um but that's just not the case and just because it's working now does not mean that it's going to work in the future yeah so Excellent. Awesome. We'll get to the next question, uh, which is from uh, Billy Ryan. He has asked, how much do you feel pushing yourself at a higher than majority of folks do on nowadays? Uh, Instagram models during massing phases has added to your ability to consistently add quality muscle year after year. What advice would you give to someone who has aspirations to gain a lot of muscle, but kind of fear that fat gain? Oh, so I imagine he's pushing myself as far as body fat goes. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of the best gains ever made were when I pushed myself to my heaviest. Um, even as a natural, I pushed myself to 230 once, but I reached about 20 something percent body fat. It was probably overkill, but I definitely put on the most amount of tissue I'd put on. That's heavy. Um, but that was also right when I started implementing like scientific training and dieting, and I was really learning a lot of the nuanced variables. So I think my best advice is you don't have to always be beach body ready. Um, if you want to be the best bodybuilder, we have to do what we must and not what we want. Cause if I was to do what I wanted to do, I would just be like 165 abs all the time, I guess. I don't, I don't know. That's probably Too where smart. I would have stopped. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of things, especially about uh, crossing over that I don't want to do, but that I must do because that's the only way that I'm going to be at the top. That's the only way that I'm going to be the best bodybuilder that I can be. So you have to step back and separate um, your wants or just assess it with the needs analysis. Like what is the most important thing to me? If the most important thing to you is being like lean year round and like getting pussy or whatever it may be, then cool, whatever, do that. Um, if the most important thing to you is being the best bodybuilder possible, there are trade-offs, uh, there are opportunity costs, there are things you're gonna have to do that you don't wanna do, that you must do. And that even comes with like scientific training. Like sometimes I just wanna go into the gym and pump out a fucking drop set of curls because I just wanna pump. Uh, sometimes that happens, even even with me. And I'm just like, that'd be really stupid. <laughs> I, I, I do what I need to do. So if, you, if your ultimate goal is to be the best bodybuilder possible uh, and, your, and your opportunity cost is, um, being lean all the time with abs because that's the next best thing. You just have to really ingrain what your biggest goal is into your mind and constantly remind yourself that that's what it is. And you're going to do the things that are necessary because 
as much as we all want lean gains, um, it's probably not optimal. It's not going to put on the most muscle tissue, and you've got to push it. Going back to Josh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad this kid did what he did. He, he, go look at some of his matching pictures. He got up there. And fortunately for him, he doesn't store a lot of Android. He's exactly like I am. Like I have abs right now at 245, and uh, it's all just down here. But he pushed his, his mass. And it's good to see somebody his age doing that. Uh, you just have to constantly remind yourself, like, going above uh, 15% is probably fine if you're not competing for a while. Let's say you take a couple years off. Going to 18 and back down to 10, 18, 10, that's fine. Uh, I think that's, that's plenty of, as far as P ratio goes and the amount of muscle tissue you're going to gain versus fat, um, that's definitely okay. Uh, continue doing that. And if you would like to time the dieting periods with, like, summer's coming up or spring break's coming up, totally cool. You can always push in – the, the next best thing into some of those goals and periodize your biggest goal in such a way that you're, you're still uh, looking good when you want to look good. Fantastic. Do you think this, this, uh, I can only say like this past off season has been the most uncomfortable I've ever got in terms of a mass. And I think it's, it's definitely paid off. And I, I wonder if Jared, do you think there's anything to seeing new high body weights? I think natural sometimes because growing muscles so slow, especially as you're advanced, people get kind of put off from, and they slow their rate of gain and they kind of don't push as high. Do you think sometimes that's kind of caps people off and they don't gain as much muscle as they could? Do you think there's something to allowing body weights, like hit ever higher body weights in off seasons or? Yeah, there, there, there could be for sure. Uh, as far as like uh, the hormones that detect body weight go. Yeah, probably. Um, uh, if you can maintain that, especially and you can uh, create a settling point at that body weight. Yeah, more than likely you're gonna diet down on more calories, you're gonna maintain more muscle tissue when you diet down. Um, and you, you probably put on more muscle tissue just by going there. Because like your pictures, you weren't over fat. And I mean, we even con uh, had a consultation and you were like, I, I think I wanna diet now, what should I do? And I was like, I think you have another mass in me. And you did it and I think that shit paid off, man. Like your chest and arms are bigger than they've ever been. They, you look insane, it's really cool. I appreciate it, yeah, yeah. it was. It wasn't fun yeah, by any means. I imagine. I imagine yeah. so uh, pushing the scale as long as it's not excessive. I'm not going to say, you know, guy who's 230 at 30% body fat. He's like, I want to be 235. <laughs> Probably not a good idea. As far as the ultimate end goal for bodybuilding goes, uh, as far as adiposity and maybe creating new fats, like, you know, you know, it's probably not a good idea. And on that note, I know uh, you wrote with Mike the mini cut manual, which is a great guide. And you probably get inundated with questions, but I'd yeah. love to kind of just hear you explain or talk a bit about excess use of those. Cause I guess this is slightly in line with the question where people kind of see a mini cut as a way to keep themselves a bit leaner sure. and maybe using them. And I think you're kind of on the side of using them very sparingly more so than more often. Yeah. So that's something that I think me and Mike, uh, back to Anshu's question, we disagreed with at first. Um, I think he was okay with the implementation of more frequent uh, mini cuts and I kind of had reserves about it. We discussed them and uh, I think we came to the conclusion that uh, it's probably best to not run. I, I'll go, I'll say to, uh, I, th I think we more than likely wrote that in the book, but I generally am only going to use one. Uh, so this is why I say that. So too many cuts within a, a, a big massive block 
let's say you or macro cycling. Let's say you that's a year long period. You run two macro cycles, and you do a bunch of massing. You're not going to compete, so you do mini cut and mini cut. Um, what a mini cut can do is resensitize some of the uh, anabolic pathways because you're going to drop the volume down to hypocaloric maintenance volume for a shortened period of time while running an aggressive diet. Um, if you do, if you go past that, you're probably going to lose muscle tissue. So it has to be like a shorter diet. Um, but it doesn't resensitize those molecular pathways fully because you're also hypocaloric still. So you're hypocaloric, which elevates a lot of the catabolic processes like AMPK. Um, but you are at maintenance volume, which can resensitize some of the anabolic processes. Since it's not doing that fully, uh, you go back into massing sort of with like the battery at 75%, right? Instead of being at 100. And I think you develop the adaptive resistance a little, a little quicker in that second phase of massing after the mini cut. So let's say you mass for three mesocycles, you mini cut, and then you try to mass for three more mesocycles. I'm unsure you get as much out of it as you did with these three, right? Because of the only 75% battery thing. Um, and then if you do that again after the second set of three mass uh, massing cycles, I'm just unsure of how, how much growth you're getting when you go back into a hypercaloric period. So if you go three massing phases, mini cut, three massing phases, mini cut, three more massing phases, I don't know what you're getting out of those last three. I can only speculate, but I assume you're getting a lot less growth. And it might have been a better idea to just run a maintenance period instead of that mini cut. And then like a, like an eight week, 10 week diet, and then mass from there to put on more tissue. Because then not only that, not only you actually resensitize, but you have a better P ratio from the lower body fat. Cool. Yeah, I think something that I really kind of have learned more about and accepted more as a bodybuilder is these kind of times away, like homeostasis, kind of like you said, yeah. the using the, the resensitization phase where you actually just maintain um, for a period of time. And much like um, from a, I guess it's uh, something I just recently spoke about was like fat loss efficiency with taking maintenance periods. So you lose a chunk of weight maintain it then lose another chunk of weight say if someone was competing lose a if you're over fat lose that chunk maintain allow kind of resensitize lots of the pathways to dieting and to muscle growth and then diet the rest off the same to like we see the same you kind of dietary fatigue we see the same sort of training fatigue in these kind of periods of time where we maintain i think bodybuilders really struggle to do and i, I know you're going through one now is there a way you've managed to sell yourself on them more have you ever i think i heard mike talking about active recovery phases whether or not they can kind of make the process quicker i don't know if that's something you agree with or you've spoken to him about um yeah jump on your thoughts and feelings behind maintenance yeah. uh i'd have to i'd have to hear mike address that to know what you mean okay because an active rest phase is a, is a period of two weeks in which you basically heal it twice um to recover some of the microstructures that probably don't fully recover during a regular deload. Um, using that as a maintenance phase, probably, I don't know if that's something Mike said. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if he, if he has, uh, 
I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> he certainly um, didn't say much. I'm going to have to get you guys to talk it out. Oh, <laughs> uh, he, he probably, I, I doubt he said that. I, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> as far as maintenance periods go and like psychology and maintenance periods, they're very tough. Um, but they definitely help you create a new settling point so you can diet down with higher calories. Um, tons of research coming out about them, uh, how, how beneficial they are as far as periodization goes and, and uh, gaining more muscle tissue later on. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you just have to tough it out, man. And after you do a couple of them, it's, they're fun. Um, I'm not going to say you should strength train during them when you're advanced, but uh, they're a fun period in time and when you're like a beginner or intermediate where you can do some strength training which is really cool because strength will maintain the uh, adaptations of hypertrophy almost indefinitely. If you just want to strength train, just make sure you're not exceeding too much volume because some strength training programs will go up in volume quite a bit. Um, and then you're technically not really doing your resensitization period, just a heavier uh, mesocycle of trying of around MEV, you know? Um, so yeah, you can do, you know, sets of four to six and, and have some fun with heavy weights and you just got to go about it in uh different mentality it's they are tough but uh you have to remind yourself it's for a purpose and a big portion of coaching um you probably run into this too especially for bodybuilders is reminding our clients that it is for a purpose um they tend they tend to not like them obviously especially after massing when you mass for three mesa cycles and then you run into a maintenance period you're like well i am a fatter smaller version of what i was at the end of my mass that's how you feel because some of that intracellular swelling is going down a little bit because you're not overly damaged all the time from the hypertrophy training, uh, less glycogen in the tissue sometimes, but you're maintaining body weight. So you just tend to look a little more puffier as that one guy was saying, he looked puffier, fluffier, whatever it was. Uh, so yeah, it's just a big psychological battle where you have to again, remind yourself that you do what you must and not what you want. Uh, if there's anything that people take away from this, hopefully it's that, uh, you do what you must. We're adults. That's how the world works. We do what we must, not what we want. Or I would sit here all day and I would not read a book. I'd watch some damn TV and masturbate or whatever else. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it reminds me of the quote of like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And now we're realizing how damn important sleep is. It's like, you've got to <laughs> go to sleep or... Like if you're ill, you take your medicine, whatever it might be. If, if you're injured, you recover. And like part of bodybuilding now and part of, I guess, efficient muscle growth, efficient fat loss is the fact that maintenance phases, just holding, maintaining, being at homeostasis is just such a underrated, powerful tool for phase potentiation, I guess. For sure. Uh, I don't know if it was in, because I have a lot of subscriptions. It might've been Krieger's review, but uh, there's promising data coming out about uh, maintenance periods as far as uh, the benefits for hypertrophy. So yeah, yeah um, Cody Horn is a plug for dreams. What Cody Horn has been doing some research there. Huh. Yes. That's who, yeah. He did some awesome. Jared, I've had you for an hour. I could keep talking to you for ages, uh, but I know you've got places to be and uh, I want to make sure people know where they can reach out to you, where to follow you. Uh, if people want to reach out, where should they head? Sure. Um, so I can say YouTube, I guess. I have a bunch of old videos on YouTube where I go through some of this. I imagine I said some things that I disagree with, but there's still good information in some of the old videos. I did an entire bodybuilding prep series in 2017. Uh, I did a somewhat of a series in my uh, last prep toward the Arnold. And then um, I have an Instagram, Jared underscore Feather. 
I don't get on Facebook much. So if you say something to me on Facebook, uh, the odds of you getting a response are very small. <laughs> but uh, I can try. <laughs> so, uh, and then just emailing me at my work email, jfeatherrp at gmail.com. Uh, I always answer my emails. So if you send me a DM and I don't answer the DM because I, it gets buried or something, uh, just shoot me an email if it's important or if you really want your question answered and we can figure something out. Amazing. Jared, I want to say a massive thank you. I'll make sure that's all linked below. And remember, guys, 9th and 10th of May, uh, the guy's going to be in London. The 9th is the only one where there's tickets available if there's even any available when this comes out. I apologize if we're sold out. Just know next time you need to get in there earlier. So, um, yeah. <laughs> See you in a bit, Jared. Thanks. Take care, guys. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.